Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down, try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Roger Wiegan, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling. Both of my partners will be with me today. Chen will be uh, speaking in just a couple of minutes. We're going to ask him about some of his ideas, uh, what are some of his top picks right now, and Roger Wiegand at the end of the show will be with me uh, as well. Our sponsors uh, for the first hour of today's show uh, are American Manganese, Atocha Resources, Haglio Resources, Metanor Resources, Merrick's Gold, Brazil Resources, American Bonanza, Paramount Gold and Silver Corp., uh, Millrock Resources, and Palangio Exploration. We do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel, uh, and we are very grateful for your support. We have lots of good uh, guests, a lot of very interesting people uh, that we have lined up coming to you next year, and today we will, our main guest is going to be Peter Grandich. Uh, he's been with us a couple of times before. Peter's written a new book, uh, that he's titled Confessions of a Wall Street Whiz Kid, in which he talks about his personal experience, uh, some of the trials and tribulations that Peter has had to endure through life, as well uh, as uh, some of the things that go on in Wall Street that people and savvy investors should be aware of. Uh, Peter has had a remarkably good track record over the years, so I think you won't want to miss what he has to say today. Uh, we're all, as I mentioned, we'll be talking to Chen Lin in just a moment, and Chen has some. Well, Chen always has a few of his top picks that you really need to pay attention to. Um, and, of course, the best thing is to subscribe to Chen's letter. If you really have a, an ability to trade and if you're short-term orientated to get in and out of some stocks at the right time, uh, I highly recommend that you give our uh, my assistant, Claudio Bossi, a call to order Chen's letter, my letter, as well as Roger Wiegand's letter, 
uh, or and you can try a trial subscription, a relatively little little expense to see if it's uh, the kind of thing that you could benefit from. That number is seven one eight four five seven fourteen twenty six seven one eight four five seven one four two six. Uh, or go to our website at miningstocks.com. As I mentioned, Peter Granich will be our main guest today, and Chen Lin is with us. And right after that, we're going to be speaking uh, to, well, actually, the first after the first break today, we are going to be talking to uh, the CEO of one of Chen's uh, favorite stocks. Uh, at least it's one that he's liked in the past. We'll get his idea about it sometime um, Perhaps today he'll have some questions and he'll stick around and talk with the CEO of the American Manganese, that's Larry Ray, who's going to be with us after the first break in just a few minutes from now. American Manganese is developing a manganese mine in Arizona, and it's a very interesting project. It looks like it should be highly profitable. So this company's shares, which are down around 36 cents today, well, they could represent a very opportunistic buy time, I think, right now. Time will tell, of course. Not saying that it's uh, anything like a sure play in this business, in the mining business. It's a high-risk, high-return endeavor, but things do seem to be lining up well for uh, for American Manganese, and we'll talk to Larry Ray a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Um, also, uh, then, as I mentioned at the end of the show today, Roger Wiegand will be joining me, and we'll get some of Roger's ideas on where he thinks the markets are going. Well, I just returned from Asia. I was in uh, Shenzhen in China and also Hong Kong, and while I was there, I was able to speak to uh, Dr. Walker. That's uh, He has been on this show before, Jim Walker. Uh, he has just written a report titled 2012, The Year of Reckoning. Uh, Jim is very much a bear on China. He's very bearish. He is an Austrian school economist, but he is also uh, very much a deflationist. So Jim's views are interesting, I think, and, uh, and, and very much in tune with my own to a great extent. Uh, he just to quote Jim from his report, he says, "Bigger, more bazooka nuclear." These are the terms being used to describe a combination of the firewall around Greece and the monetary expansion program expected of the ECB IMF. But there is only one problem: where is the money coming from? There is no money available for bailouts, so policymakers will print more, but that will lead to an even worse outcome, according to Jim, and very much agree with that, and I think Chen Lin probably does as well. Uh, Walker's recommendations for 2012 is buy safety, buy yielding blue chips, buy gold, buy silver, and buy the yen. And buy a hard hat just as well, just in case uh, this is Chicken Little's year in 2012. Well, I might add that Dr. Walker, uh, uh, who has will be on this show again sometime in the not-too-distant future, I'm confident saying that. I as I said, was uh, privileged to meet up with him over coffee in Hong Kong uh, just yesterday, as a matter of fact. So um, <clears throat> anyway, speaking of China, uh, let me turn now to my good Chinese friend and partner, Chen Lin. Hi, Chen. Hi, Jay. How are you? How was your trip? Well, the trip was really good. It was a grueling 16 hours coming back, but, you know, not too bad. Um, and uh, let's just say it's better than taking a boat to China, a slow boat. <laughs> so, so, Chen, um, all right. There are a couple of stocks that you're really high on that are really very, very interesting. Rye Patch. And Rye Patch has had some news. Talk to us about Rye Patch. Right, yeah. It, it, it turned out uh, Rye Patch just take uh, uh, the land of uh, Cordillera and their Rochester mine. What happened was the Cordillera just forgot to uh, to renew its permit. So the permit is according to United States mining law. 
is uh, go back to United government and open for anyone to stake. Because right patch just right next to uh, Quadrillion Line, so they can they know the area very well. So they just uh, stake all the land of uh, most of the land of Quadrillion Rochester Mine. Yeah, and there's, as I understand it, a couple of issues here that make this very valuable. Rypatch's stock moved up considerably on that news, did it not? Yes. I might mention that Rypatch is a sponsor of the show, and we uh, did interview the CEO just a couple of weeks ago, Bill Howell. Uh, Chen, can you give us an idea, a sense of what that asset package may include? What might Rypatch pick up here in this process? Yeah, it's most of the land position in Rochester Mine, and so all these unpatented land positions they got. So right now the Rochester pit is on their land position. So basically, without those um, uh, without those land positions, the Kodan don't have a mine. Mm. And I, I was, uh, was so it's very valuable. Uh, according to Bill Howard, is had probably had resource between fifty to hundred million ounces of silver. Wow, of silver. Obviously, so a very valuable asset, and it, it it did cause the stock to move very very nicely. But you know, I like this stock. It was a pick of mine, and I think you probably had it too, Chen. I'm not sure if you had it. Did you, have you had it in your letter? Yes, I, I got in just on that day when the news. On started. that day, okay. Well, it was one that we had uh, picked up uh, in the past, and uh, and and obviously, I liked it before this news came out, and uh, because I think it has great exploration potential. Anyway. Mart, talk to us about Mart Resources. What's going on there? Stock has moved okay. very nicely recently. Has moved on that very nicely. Yeah, we're talking a few weeks ago it was 50 cents, now it's 80. And then you look at the chart, still consolidating. It's just the buying pressure keep keep building. So the sellers are running out of shares. They still haven't announced that the most important news, which I believe is the pipeline deal, because once they got a deal, pipeline deal signed, they will double their production. That will open the door for a dividend payout. Yeah, and Chen, those, that production is what now, and what is it expected to go to then with the pipeline? Right now, it's a seven to eight thousand barrel per day. Uh-huh. And after, after the deal, they immediately go go to fourteen to fifteen thousand uh-huh. a, a day. Plus, they're going to drill a few wells coming. They have another well results coming very soon in a few weeks. Yeah, and then eventually they will be over twenty thousand barrel per day. So basically, you can. Triple, almost triple its production, current production. Right. Well, that's really good. And and uh, stock is selling at about what time? How is the stock relative to its cash flow at, at say, fourteen thousand barrels a day? Yes. Uh, right now, it, it used to be one time at fifty, sixty cents. Now it's probably one point five times. I would think. Yeah, because I, it's have, I have to go back to you know to calculate. But again, this would depend on the oil price. You, you give a conservative estimate, maybe a hundred, a hundred oh five. For next year, and then you you calculate that that's a cash flow thing. To work yeah, on. yeah. Uh, well, anyway, this is this is a very bright uh, picture, I think, for Mart Resources and still it's, a exactly. stock that would seem to be it's a very low cost producer. So right. basically, their cash flow is not too much impact by the oil price. Of course, it does, but it's not as much as high those high cost producers. Right, Chen. You know, uh, in just a minute after we take our commercial break, I'm going to be talking to Larry Ray. Uh, of American Manganese, and that's a company that you've followed in the past as well, right? Yes, that's correct. And you're still positive on it? Oh, yeah, I'm quite positive. They have a huge manganese uh, resource. Uh-huh. So, uh, and then China, the production is coming down. Uh, so there will be a very interesting opportunity. I think eventually all these trade wars, all these resource wars will force countries to be more producing 
stuff more localized. So manganese is badly needed in all these major industries in the United States. If, you know, yeah. the United States still well, promote industry. So that, that will be a very important mark. Well, Chen, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you uh, to stick around and maybe you have a question or two for Larry. Sure. Could you do that? Yep. All right. Well, folks, uh, we are going to take a, a commercial break right now, and as soon as we come back, we'll have Larry Ray and Chen Lin will stay with us. Uh, we're going to get an update on uh, American manganese, which we've heard about before, uh, and it is a very exciting project. The stock isn't behaving very well, and the good news there is, for those of us that don't own it yet, um, it might be a great opportunity. We're going to talk to uh, Larry Ray in just a minute, so we'll be back. Uh, don't go away. business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Merix Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merix and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merix's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American Bonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Meadow Bay Gold is a gold exploration, pre-production, and development company focused on developing its flagship project, the Atlanta Gold Mine in Nevada. Meadow Bay Gold has recently announced a significant gold porphyry discovery at the Atlanta Mine and is currently conducting a significant drill program. Meadow Bay Gold trades under the symbol MAYGF on the OTCQX or MAY on the TSX Venture Exchange. To learn more about Meadow Bay Gold, go to www.meadowbaygold.com. Gold in Nevada, the right stuff in the right place. Attention gold stock investors, Brazil Resources Inc., trading as BRIZF on the OTCQX and as BRI on the TSX Venture, is exploring three gold projects in the Garupi Gold Belt in Brazil. Surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits, BRI features top Brazilian geologists, earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold directly in Brazil, led by recognized mining and financing executive Amir Adnani, co-founder and chairman. Look us up now at www.brazilresources.com. That's Brazil Resources. 
www.thepetsnews.com or call us at 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Good times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me Larry Ray. He's the president and CEO of American Manganese. Larry's been with us before, uh, but maybe to many of you, uh, the story is a new story. Uh, it is a good story, I believe. We're going to get updated on it in just a minute to give you an idea. Uh, the company trades in Toronto under the symbol AMY, and you can buy it in the United States under the symbol AMYZF. There's uh, approximately 87.2 million shares of stock outstanding at 36 cents. Uh, per share gives it a market cap of around $31 million. Also uh, staying with me here is Chen Lin, who has followed this company as well. And uh, So welcome, uh, Larry and Chen, both, uh, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, I'm glad to be here, Jay. Hello, Chen. Hi, Larry. Chen, um, or, or Larry, let me just start out with you and ask you, um, you to just perhaps give an overview of your story to people that may not have heard it before. Manganese. What is it used for? And then there's something called electromagnese. Uh, talk to us about the uses uh, for this metal. Okay, manganese is uh, irreplaceable in the making of steel. It takes about uh, 10 to 20 uh, kilograms to make a ton of steel, and mm-hmm. uh, there's absolutely no replacement for it. Now, the electrolytic manganese is uh, used in uh, specialty stainless steels, uh, the aluminum industry, and the electrical industry for the most part. And that is uh, produced uh, almost totally out of China. They have about 98%, uh, 98.5% of the 3 billion uh, pound market that they produce each year. Hmm. Now, there, um, the electromagnesis is, is, is a more valuable product, is it not? Is it, uh, it, it fetches more uh, per ton? Yes, the electrolytic manganese metal is the uh, top end of the product line. Uh, usually you have ore that starts out uh, today at around uh, 10 cents a pound. Mm-hmm. And then you have the ferros. Uh, your highest price ferro is medium, uh, medium and low carbon, or I mm-hmm. should say low carbon uh, ferro, and that one uh, fetches about 90 cents a pound. Mm-hmm. And the electrolytic manganese metal check, uh, fetches about a dollar fifty a pound, and as does the uh, electrolytic manganese dioxide that's used in the battery industry. Mm-hmm. It's priced about the same. And you are expecting to produce the electromagnetic manganese? Uh, complete, is that right? Yes, we have a large deposit that's uh, forty-three one hundred one, uh, indicated uh, thirteen point eight billion pounds. 
and three and a half billion pounds in the inferred in uh, Mojave County, Arizona. Hmm. That's a lot of manganese, it would seem. That's a lot of manganese, and uh, as you know, Jay, we had a preliminary economic evaluation done almost three years ago. Mm-hmm. It showed us showed that we could be the lowest cost producer in the world, and uh, that our capital costs were in the hundred million dollar range. Now, mm-hmm. I expect that the uh, the costs will go up. They've gone up for China. They've gone up for the one producer in South Africa. And uh, so I expect that they'll go up for us. I mean, just the uh, material that we need and the chemicals we need are going to have increased in price. And, of course, labor, concrete, all of those things have increased in price. But we're still going to be probably less than half the cost in China. Okay, Larry, but if you uh, are producing a product that there is no substitute for, and if you can have the lowest cost or one of the lowest cost mines in the world, then you should be in pretty good shape to fund uh, to raise the capital required for that hundred plus million dollar capex. Oh, exactly, Jay. The um, the interesting thing is we're looking at doing about fifty thousand tons of production of metal a year. Uh, we could easily do uh, ten times that and still have a thirty or forty year reserve. Huh. But the fifty uh, fifty thousand tons is a pretty significant uh, electrolytic manganese metal producer. And it's uh, something certainly in the ballpark that a junior company like American Manganese can handle. Okay, so there has been uh, a recent study on electromanganese. Talk to our listeners about that. Well, we've engaged uh, actually two studies. Um, Peter Zhang's came out about a month ago, and recently we just announced on December the 6th the uh, forecast by CPM Group. And uh, your readers and listeners may be... uh, familiar with CPM. They're the guys with the gold and silver report out of New York. Mm -hmm. And they've actually been doing specialty metals now for some years. I think they started off with us uh, on our molybdenum project uh, Mm -hmm. five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. And this will be the first manganese project that they have uh, thoroughly uh, researched. And they've researched the production and the supplies coming out of China, what's happening in China. And that report is certainly very bullish for our company and mm-hmm. anybody else that wants to go into the business for that matter. Mm-hmm. Larry, could you give us some sort of an idea? I know that, you're, uh, that you are involved or you're going to be having a feasibility study uh, completed, and I think you said there's, uh, we were talking before we went on the air, something like 70% of that, has been, of that work has been completed. Uh, when do you expect that to be completed? I expect to be able to report on that by uh, mid-February. Okay. And that'll give us new numbers to work with. Okay. Uh, and, you know. of course, new numbers will be better. They'll be more up-to-date. But could you give our listeners just an idea? You mentioned that you could be one of the lower-cost producers uh, in the world without you know, recognizing this as a forward-looking statement. What uh, sort of numbers were talked about in the past from uh, uh, you know, in the preliminary economic assessment? Okay, that was a 43101 document, and mm-hmm. we were looking at a cost of about 45 cents a pound. Mm-hmm. Capital for electromag- about, mag- pardon? For electromagnetic manganese. That's right, for the electrolytic manganese metal. Mm-hmm. And uh, that would be the cash cost mm-hmm. uh, before payback. If you added the payback in, you'd be closer to 65 cents a pound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was on a $90 million uh, um, CapEx. CapEx. Mm-hmm. Now we uh, we did that at a base price of a dollar ten a pound. 
uh-huh. the current price uh, in the U.S. is a dollar eighty, mm. and uh, in uh, uh, the rest of the world it's a dollar fifty. So, mm-hmm. as you can see, the price has gone up. Uh, we expect that our cost uh, price will go up. There's just no way that won't happen. I mean, we use chemicals and everything just like mm-hmm. anybody else does. Sure. And uh, all of those things have increased in cost since uh, the study was done, which was just after the bottom of the market in 2008. Mm-hmm. So, but you're still going to be, we expect to still come in at uh, somewhere around half the price of China. Mm-hmm. So, you might, would... uh, so you might have a margin of, of what, I mean, per pound. Uh, it's, I know it's, it's hard to say yet, and your, your feasibility study will be more definitive and will raise the confidence bar, of course, because it will be up to date. But... Let's say that you know if you're looking at a dollar eighty, and your costs previously were forty-five cents. I mean, you might be looking at what sixty-five, seventy cents in production now, or eighty yeah, cents. Yeah, for easy, easy numbers, let's say it's seventy cents and a dollar eighty, dollar ten, one hundred and ten million pounds. Doesn't take long to add up the uh, the profitability of that. And even if the capex goes up thirty or forty million dollars, uh, it's not really sensitive to capital costs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the payback will still be less than two years. Larry, how much production do you, do you expect per year? Uh, 50,000 tons, which would be uh, roughly 110 million uh, pounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, you know, if anybody wants to uh, do the math on that, they yeah. pretty people easy that, to do. People that enjoy arithmetic, and I think when it comes to counting dollars, most people do. Uh, Chen, have you got a question for Larry? Yes, um, Larry. Uh, how do you plan to proceed? To you know, you plan to have a partner, or do, do you plan to uh, to get you know go to get some from the market to get a loan some from uh, what the ratio do you need to raise to to build a mine? Well, of course, we look at all of those combinations. I'll, I'll give you a, a thumbnail of uh, you know what we might expect. Uh, We have entered into no off-take agreements. We've been offered off-take agreements now for over a year and a half, uh, but there's no money with them. And we feel that's one of the biggest bargaining chips that a company can have is uh, given the off-take to, say, a strategic partner that picks up 20% of the project. And uh, that would be one way of doing it. They'd have to, of course, they'd have to pay for that 20%, and then they'd be on the hook for 20% of the capital costs and the operating costs. But uh, we would probably, uh, in this case, because you are the lowest cost producer in the world, you could probably look at a very weighted uh, debt side of it, you know, some sort of a, a bond issue. And uh, for maybe up to 80% of the project and maybe uh, 20% in equity. Mm-hmm. That's uh, very interesting, Larry. We, you know, we're, unfortunately, we, time goes so fast. You're selling at $0.36 cents a share. The economics look enormously attractive. Why do you think the shares are selling so at, at these prices? Well, like our peers, we're getting drummed, and uh, you know, currently there's uh, tax loss selling going on. There's uh, there's uh, also you know the capitulation uh, because of the market in the last eight or nine months. People yeah. are capitulating and throwing in the towel. Yeah, um, we think that uh, we've you know significantly advanced the company to the stage of where it's worth a lot more than it was uh, last fall when we did our financings at seventy cents a share. Yeah, and uh, so you know it's it's a good entry point for somebody, and the markets you know create opportunities. 
Well, they do. Uh, certainly anybody who believes in efficient markets, I think it must be smoking something funny. I, I don't see it in these uh, resource markets. We've got all kinds of money to bail out inefficient banks, creating money out of thin air. Uh, a little editorializing here from yours truly, but uh, there, that means that there are some great opportunities. And, Larry, it seems to me that yours looks like one of them to me, and, and Chen seems to, to feel the same way. What uh, how, People that want to keep up with your story, what is your website? Okay, it's AmericanManganese.com, uh, AmericanManganeseInc.com. Uh, AmericanManganeseInc.com. Very good. Well, thank you, Larry, for uh, for updating us on your company's story. It is okay. a very, very interesting one. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with our main guest this week, Peter Grandage. Don't go away. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Africa is known for its world-class gold deposits. Both Namibia and Tanzania are mining-friendly countries, and Helio has been exploring for gold here for the last six years. Backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders, Helio is drilling its SMP Gold Project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential for a multi-million ounce resource. Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in Namibia, which is situated next to Anglo Gold Ashanti's Navatschap Gold Mine. For updates, check out helioresource.com. Capitalizing on North America's gold assets, Marathon Gold Corp. MOZ on the TSX is building value through resource development in Newfoundland and Idaho. Q1 2012 is expected to be a rewarding time for Marathon, with an update resource estimate expected on its economic leprechaun gold deposit in Newfoundland, and an initial resource estimate is expected at the same time on its Golden Chest project in Idaho, a historical producer. Don't miss this opportunity to capitalize on today's gold price. For more info, visit www.marathon-gold.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at w www.rypatchgold.com Voice America Business Network The bottom line in business Welcome to the human race Some kind of love and ride I'll be sliding down I'll be gliding down Try not to try to Heart. It's just a lovely ride. 
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really delighted once again to have with me as my main guest today, Peter Grandich. Peter is an outspoken Christian. He is a follower of Jesus. He will be the first to tell you that he is far from perfect, um, that he often fails. But what is? But that is what Christians admit uh, when they go to Mass on Sunday mornings. They they talk of their confessions, realizing that they are flawed. And, of course, only when we realize we have problems can we solve them. Peter has been a longtime friend of mine. Many of you may not be happy about what Peter has to say. Uh, it may conflict with your own views of life. But in life, we have choices to make. Robert Frost may have been reflecting on the words in the Bible when he talked about taking the road less traveled by. Doing what you know or believe is right is often not an easy thing to do because it often puts you in a very small minority. We feel comfortable when everybody else agrees with us. On this show in the past, I had the brilliant and very famous prosecuting attorney Vincent Bugliosi on my show to not only talk about his latest book, The Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder, but also to talk about why he is an agnostic. Vincent's theistic theistic views are much more widely accepted than Peter's. I must, uh, I'm quite confident in saying that. But that doesn't mean that Vincent is right and Peter is wrong. Indeed, we had another guest on this show, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, who presents a solid scientific evidence that the God of the Bible is true. In any event, today I am letting Peter Granich talk about his new book, Confessions of a Wall Street Whiz Kid, and his uh, Christian faith that goes with that uh, book and is very much a part of it. And perhaps we will get him also to provide some of his sound views on the markets, which quite frankly have been as good as any there are in recent years. With no formal education or training, Peter Granich entered Wall Street in the mid-1980s and within three years was appointed vice president of investment strategy for a leading New York Stock Exchange member firm. Now an internationally acclaimed financial expert, Peter has made a 25-plus year career out of his knack for uncannily accurate market predictions. Labeled the Wall Street whiz kid by Good Morning America, Granich gained national notoriety by being among the very few who not only forecasted the 1987 stock market crash just before it happened, but on the very next day he predicted that within two years the market would reach a new all-time high, which it did. Proving his 1987 forecast was no fluke, Peter said in January 2000 that the year would go down as the year the great mega bull market of the 80s and 90s came to an end. Again, he was right on target. Peter also practices the golden rule, which sadly is all too rare on Wall Street. Welcome, Peter, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, very uh, especially pleased to be with you, Joe, as you, Jay, as you noted, as in your outlet, we have known each other for almost my entire career, and you were very kind, especially in my early days, to participate in many charity seminars I did on the New Jersey coast, so it's, a, it, it's always a pleasure to be speaking with you. It's always a, a pleasure to speak with you as well, Peter. And of course, uh, in those days, the charity was uh, more to Jay Taylor to allowing him to allow him to uh, 
to speak in front of people and, and to become known. So I, I'm not sure uh, that it was the kindness of my heart so much as it was my own interest in in, uh, in trying to establish myself in the industry. But I always I know that you have been involved in many charities through the years and have helped many people, and that's a part of who you are. You're uh, you have a heart for people who have problems, who are less fortunate, and we'll get into that. I'm sure that'll be part of what we talk about in the next number of minutes. Um, in any event, Peter, um, I, I want to sort of uh, look at your new book, Confessions of a Wall Street Whiz Kid. Uh, it is essentially the story of your life uh, to a great extent. Um, writing a book, though, is a major task. I mean, this is you know nearly 200 pages, and it's um, you know I've, I've not. You know, I've thought about writing a book, but goodness sakes, it's it's quite a task. What um, prompted you to write a book at this stage in your life? Uh, well, you're right. It is a task. It probably took at least 12 months longer than originally anticipated. And But, you know, I, I kind of view that that was God's time, so it came out when it needed to come out. But uh, I guess because of what I went through, uh, what I see now and because in the financial industry there's very very limited mixture of faith and finance it's a, mm-hmm. it's almost a taboo in fact it was a taboo i note in the book how i i, I wanted to have a firm openly about that and and wasn't able to get anybody to uh to support such a thing in fact i was told you can't put jesus on the door i said okay so you can put a rock and a bull but you can't put jesus okay i understand yeah uh, but uh, the, the basis really was is that he, 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 here's the nut of it. There are about 200 books in the bookstore right now on a shelf in the financial section, written mm-hmm. by a whole bunch of authors, uh, you know, believing that they can assist people in financial matters. And in mm-hmm. about two years, that number of books will turn over. There'll be about another 200 books. Most of the ones that are there now will have either moved to the bottom of the shelf or don't exist anymore and then in two years from now after that so with history being that case in the last several decades we've had thousands upon thousands of books written on financial matters yet today no one hands us any one particular one and says this is the answer that you need to to achieve your financial goals etc etc and uh people are as messed up and still lost in a lost world trying to grasp and understand their financial ways. Mm -hmm. And the irony is there is a book which can only be one of three things. And and I'm going to approach, if you don't mind, this talk both from a spiritual and a secular view, understanding that you noted you had a guest once on that wasn't a true believer. So I'm going to look at it both ways. Mm -hmm. The Bible is only one of three things. It's either the Word of God, it's a bunch of crap, excuse my French, or it's something and come together for reasons we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. But no matter what you call it and what you believe it is or isn't, it has by far been the most dominating, influential book ever written, impacted more people by far than any other, and is here today when all those other books we spoke about is gone. That's undisputable. You can't dispute that. Now, in the contents of that book, whoever may be the author or authors of it, the second most talked about topic, which even surprises Christians when, when they hear this, is matters of money and finance. Mm-hmm. So the author or authors, in our views, God, but if you want to look at it from the other way, recognized and believed how influential and important matters of money and finance would be on. Mm-hmm. In fact, half the parables 
are regarding that. So, mm-hmm. such a powerful book that's influenced more people one way or another throughout mankind's history, the author or authors of it felt that matters of money and finance were so crucial. Now, if I said to people and we were talking about great restaurants or we were talking about how to get a job or how to build a better car and all, we would rave if we knew of a particular uh, mechanic that fixes well, a great restaurant where there was a cook. Well, folks, you've you, you got to look at the Bible not as a spiritual wonderkin for the kind, but if you're in the financial world, why not look at a book that's been read by more people and the author or authors of it has spent more time on monies and finance than just about anything else? Mm-hmm. And almost everybody has it. So when I concluded that a few years ago, I started to read the Bible, Jay, mm-hmm. from a different perspective. I took my experience, and maybe you could appreciate my living day-to-day experiences, and started to read Scripture. And mm-hmm. it began to hit, Jay, of how much both how I acted, good and bad, because as you know, as a reader of the book, this isn't a a pound of chest, I'm a great guy, Peter Grandish story. Mm -hmm. This has a lot to do with my mistakes, my failures, my my chairman and CEO of being the Me, Myself, and I Society uh, for for taking Ten Commandments, making them into the Ten Suggestions. This is not a book that glorifies the life of Peter Grandish, but it is centered and built around understanding that there is one and only book out there that in the end can help all of us, including me, in matters of finance, and that's the Holy Bible. Mm-hmm. Interesting uh, enough, it certainly is sex and money or, or topics that are covered uh, an awful lot in the Bible, no doubt about that. Well, Peter, I'd like to sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd like to approach the, the book, uh, your, your latest book, um, and, and just talk about it, maybe approach it chapter by chapter. Chapter sure. one was titled, An Unlikely Candidate. Give your background as a kid uh, and the path to riches that you took on Wall Street. I mean, you weren't, most people wouldn't have expected Peter Granich to be this, uh, uh, this Wall Street star as you became. But, but talk to us a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing and, and the environment that you grew up in. Sure. As the co-author Joe Schloter, uh, Joe being J-O and, and, a, and a lady says, clearly the most unlikely candidate to be a Wall Street whiz kid. Most people would assume if they heard somebody was tagged that, you know, educated, Wharton School of Business, Harvard, you know, country club, yachting, uh, you know, Peter Graham's yep. is none of that. I, I didn't finish high school. Uh, I had never fit targeted or had any a day's worth of formal training to become in the financial world. I was... Uh, I was a, a kid that grew up in the disco world, and my life existed for Friday and Saturday night. I would eventually meet my future wife, who would just uh, literally take me by storm, who was, you know, totally different than any other woman I had known at that time. She was deeply devout. She was born and raised in Ireland. I needed to get married in Ireland. I was raised by a non-practicing Catholic father and Jewish mother, baptized as a child, and then left completely not even a, so much as a little pamphlet about God. So when I, to get married in the Church of Ireland, I needed to be Catholic. So at age 23, I became Catholic. But to be honest, Jay, I would have came Buddhist, if that's what my wife was. Mm. It wasn't a, a, a calling at that time. Yeah. I, I, I became Catholic. Uh, I got married. My wife was given a little bit of a diary. And I began uh, investing in the stock market on my own. And I had literally turned, in the early 1980s, $7,000 into $100,000 uh, 
while I worked as a warehouse manager. And then I got a call, and the name of the firm I used in the book, I'll say it, it was a penny stock firm at the time out of Colorado called Blinder Robinson. Mm-hmm. I, I nicknamed them Rob the Blind Robinson because <laughs> in the end uh, I would lose uh, the entire amount of dollars uh, in the account uh, tri- uh, buying and selling penny stocks through a broker. Mm-hmm. But it motivated me and, and, and gave me thought about, well, you know, it's almost like out of that movie Trading Places with Duke and Duke say whether our clients make money or lose money, Duke and Duke make the commission. And I was intrigued that despite all the losses, my the, the, the advisor didn't lose any money. So I, I, I started an investors club, and there I was discovered by a guy named Bob Knapp, who at the time had a small New York stock exchange firm called Brown and Knapp. He convinced me I should become a stockbroker, and in March of 1984, Again, without any formal training, I studied for the test and became a, a Series 7, what we used to call at the time stockbrokers. We don't call mm-hmm. those folks anymore stockbrokers. And mm-hmm. in 1984, uh, I started working for him. Uh, and at first, uh, I had an investors club that I had previously started, and a few of my clients were from there. But I had a terrible, terrible floor for a young stockbroker, I could not cold call, Jay. I mean, mm. one call, the person hung up, I was done. In fact, if, if all these callers that annoy us were like me, we never have any callers. <laughs> I, just, I couldn't call. So the guy who I worked for wrote a newsletter at the time. Mm-hmm. He suggested I should start a newsletter. He felt mm-hmm. I was analytical. Mm-hmm. And so the Grandage letter, which was originally started, the first issue in October 1984, was issued in in lieu of having to call people. It mm. was a sales tool. It was a, sure. a way of building a, a book of business, and that's how it all started. Sure. Well, an honest sales tool, uh, Peter, because I know your work and you you are very analytical, uh, and you know through thick or thin, I've I've always known you to be an honest person. So I'm sure your work benefited you benefited a lot of clients in those days. You know, uh, okay, I appreciate that word, but. As I told you, and you know me now for years, especially after which we'll talk later about some battles I've had, uh, I wish what you just said was all true, but there were times, and we could talk about it, where I was less than honest. Mm-hmm. I even talk about incidents in the book, and, and I and I talk for it not only for, for personal salvation and confession, but also let people know that, uh, and, and you know, we can expand on it later, on my bigger picture, Wall Street, that... In, in, a, in a thing that's so important to people, you know, outside of love and hopefully the love of God and family, finances are the mo- most important thing in the world, yet the industry is, is, is a wholly, in my opinion, dishonest environment. Yeah. And so I, I wouldn't want anybody to think, and I do appreciate it because I know you say that sincerely, you're not saying it to make me sound good, but there are issues and we all have skeletons in our closets and I brought some of them out in the book. So. You know, I do appreciate everything, but, you know, I, I, there were times and there were, I'm sure, clients I had that would say even to this day, especially the limited knowledge I had in those first few years as a broker, when I think about it now, uh, maybe be less than happy to know that they have known me. So I, I want to be, you know, completely honest. Okay, up well, set, setting the record straight, which is uh, which which makes you honest, Peter, in the fact uh, that you're willing to, uh, to to talk about that. I mean, I think that's... One of the things I've come to appreciate you oh, appreciate about you is that your willingness to say, "Hey, look, I'm flawed. I've made mistakes. I, I've screwed up at times, and I've done things that weren't the most honorable." Hey, Jay, so. we're, we're in the junior resource business where failure's the norm. Boy, if you can't admit mistakes in our end of the business, 
you got to get out of the business. Well, that's true, Peter. That uh, very, very. It is a high risk, high return game, no doubt about it. And perhaps later in the discussion, we can talk briefly about sure. that. But mostly, I want to focus on your book in chapter two, uh, early lessons learned on the street. Uh, talk to us about one or two of those, perhaps, if you can. Well, let's talk about it because it really is the first time that I pushed the gray area. As I note in that chapter, one of the earliest clients I had was a fairly big technology executive who had links to investment bank houses and uh, he would call me to a meeting and urge me in his account to buy stocks and options in a company which I disclosed in the book at the time was called Decision Data and I was curious when I asked him why are you taking such a big position and he said something to the effect I don't remember the exact words now this is almost 30 years ago he said you don't need to know and it was kind of like a wink wink Well, I just took that assumption, knowing what I believe he did for a living and the people he knew, uh, he must know something. Mm. And uh, what little few clients I had and little money I had, we all bought stock and options in it. And probably, I only think it was a few weeks later, there was a takeover and the stock doubled in price. Mm -hmm. And I I brought that up in the book, not only to note the first time that I pushed what I call the the envelope in the gray area, uh, but to, to let people know that. Unfortunately, that is not an isolated case in, in the industry. It wasn't then and certainly isn't now. Mm. But one of the things I, I, that really set the stage, I think, uh, and of course I believe it was all set by my Lord and Savior, but really set the stage was early on I was able to uh, convince uh, a local young man to do a little story on me, and I took that story because, you know, there was really no guys dropped out of high school that were out, you know, touting their wares as, you know, financial experts. Yeah, yeah. But I used it to so-called advantage. I got a couple of bigger stories, multiplied, excuse me, those stories into an appearance on what was then known as the Financial News Network, FNN. Mm-hmm. And it would be an appearance on a, a then very popular talk segment that would take place right after the market close called the Eva Dawn Show, where I had to fly out to California, do this interview for another 30 minutes or an hour, I can't remember, and we got so many calls for the letter and new clients from it that I got back on in another month, and before you knew it, I was, in 1987, promoted to head of investment strategy for a New York Stock Exchange member firm, and it would be a couple months later where I would then make a forecast of a crash that wasn't the forecast of the crash that upset uh, the people I worked for. But the fact that I suggested people sell everything, they wanted mm. me to retract it and resign. Mm. I chose not to. Uh, and then six weeks later, in October 1987, the crash occurred. And that was really the first elevation to, I want to call it national prominence or recognition, what mm-hmm. have you. But, you know, on Wall Street, you're as only good as your last call. And if your last call was a great call, well, you can get a lot of recognition. And, and that's what started to happen then. Well, you did have a lot of success early on, um, and you, as you mentioned, the, the media, the um, chapter three, you titled "The Media Crowns the Kid," and that's what you're talking about, I guess. Your early success. What did it do to you as a person? How did you feel about yourself in those days? Well, that's when I think I started to move up the ranks in the Me, Myself, and I Society, and mm-hmm. eventually became chairman and CEO. Uh, I think I was somewhat of a legend in my own mind. I think I, well, but let, let's say that first of all, I still have friends to this day that say I was a, a marketing whiz. You know, I was able mm-hmm. to market myself to a level. Mm-hmm. I mean, within a few years, 
you know, I'm appearing on television. I mean, for CNBC for three, three and a half years, almost on a, on a weekly spot. I appeared on every show that was what I thought at the time was important except Wall Street Week. Uh, and then, you know, just constant media appearances, got invited to conferences, ended up managing a, a, a fund that bared my name, some hedge funds, uh, and, you know, was living the life of what was I certainly would have signed on the dotted line was the American dream. And uh, through all that, uh, there would be personal experiences, which I think continues in a few chapters of of uh, my wife becoming pregnant, potential mm-hmm. uh, difficulties, and, and 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 it would set the stage for for a much more expanded life. And with that, some very good, but then some very very deep and dark times. Yes, indeed, Peter. In chapter four. You talk about the fears of becoming a father, and it was along about that time that I first met up with you, I believe. Um, and I don't know exactly quite the year, but it was it was back, um, you know, after. It would you be had, nine, in 1992. 1992, and I remember very well the the difficulties of your wife's pregnancy. There was some doubt about the ability or the the child's uh, survival. Uh, and we'll talk to us about that experience because not only. As I recall it, Peter, it was uh, seemed sort of miraculous. Um, as as I recall that situation, your your daughter was born, is alive, and doing very well through either in college or out of college now. But but talk to us a little bit about sure that we, time. Uh, of, um, we would difficult. my wife would uh, actually um, um, have a, uh, a a female difficulty. We were told by the doctor it may be difficult for the <laughs> pregnant. She was approaching at that time, which was considered the upper end of age where women have children. She was just under 40, and uh, she, we did get, she did get pregnant. There was a, uh, a, a test that suggested that uh, the child may have what is known as spinal bifida. Uh, mm-hmm. There may be a hole in the back. Mm-hmm. My wife, who was devout from the day I met her while I was a C&E Catholic, meaning Christmas and Easter was when I mostly found myself in church. Uh, the uh, we would go to a. Uh, she would tell me about a, a, a healing mass run by an Irish priest, which a church that I would literally walk by all the time from my office from where we live. And finally, I went in with her, and during the healing mass, she was prayed over. Christians know as the saying, "As a slain in the spirit, she would get." She would literally you know, almost fall to the floor and pass out. And, of course, when you're married to someone and you you actually physically sleep with them, you know when they're sleeping, when they're unconscious. And my wife was unconscious for a short period of time. And the Irish priest leaned over and said the Holy Spirit was here, but for reasons I don't know. And then uh, when my child was born, she was born fine. So we always view Tara as a miracle child. Mm-hmm. And uh, it at least set me in the stage for what I be, I've coined, I became a godfather Catholic. And people say, mm-hmm. what's the difference between a CE Catholic and a godfather Catholic? <laughs> well, I said, well, yeah. in the movie Godfather, Michael is standing for his daughter's child to be the godfather while he's knowing all his enemies, he's having them whacked. And that's basically how I lived. I went to church. You know, I certainly became active with my wife and would go to Mass regularly and all. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, as I said, I was turning the Ten Commandments into the Ten Suggestions. I was very bolsterous. I was making large-scale donations to get the awards and accolades. And, again, living a lifestyle, as America did, uh, way beyond its means. Mm-hmm. So while it did 
start me on my road to my faith, which would eventually culminate in some extremely dark periods, but then eventually uh, the light of all lights would shine. Uh, that was a period of time in my child's birth, and like you said, when we first met, where things started to change. By, in 95, I reached the American dream, or what I was told the American dream, or thought it was at the time, uh, millions of dollars, left the brokerage business, went into full-time consulting, writing the newsletter, uh, took up, a, uh, you know, bought five race horses, sponsored two race cars, and then took up a terrible male addiction called golf. And <laughs> it became such a, a, a process for me uh, that my wife said on about six or seven days a row way of playing golf, she asked me one day, are you playing golf again? And, and I told her how indignant I was that I planned on playing golf every day for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But uh, God would have other plans, and uh, those plans, you know, obviously are noted as the book goes on. Well, indeed, and uh, actually we do need to take a, a commercial break here, Peter. And when we come back, though, I want to talk to you a little bit about, uh, in Chapter 6, the making of Trinity Financial. It seems as that was a period of time when uh, you were starting to merge your uh, emerging faith uh, with the financial realm. And so I want to talk to you about, uh, about the making of Trinity Financial, which I believe is, a, is an organization you're still involved with. Is that yeah. right? So when we come back from the break, uh, folks, uh, we're going to talk to Peter. Much more to talk to him about. And uh, certainly we're going to get his views on the markets as well before we conclude today's talk. But uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with Peter Granich. Mm-hmm. 